Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. So, Paula, every case that we have covered so far on this show has really felt so personal to me. After learning about these victims and their families and researching all of the facts, I always walk away feeling like I somehow know these people. And I have to tell you, this case really, really hurt my heart. Oh, no. I know. This one, I have three boys. And I don't know if you've noticed, but so far, I've only covered one case of a little boy just because it it hits home for me. Of course. Um, This is the story of a 15-year-old boy who was handsome and sweet and he seemed like a really good kid and researching the details of this case I just couldn't help but to put myself in his mother's shoes and my heart just aches for her and for their entire family. Today I'm going to tell you about the death of Terry Sutter. So this week's case takes us to Frankfort, Michigan on September 1st, 1973. It was Labor Day weekend and teenagers and adults alike were enjoying the last few weeks of summer before heading back to school or getting back to work after their summer vacation. And 15-year-old Terry Wayne Sutter had spent the day doing yard work, presumably for his neighbors. Terry had made arrangements with his mother, Luella, to pick him up when he was finished with these projects. But Luella had six kids. Terry was right in the middle. He was the third child with an older brother and an older sister. And as moms often do, Luella got busy doing other things and she forgot to come pick Terry up. Now this was no big deal for Terry. He was laid back and it was a small town and he decided to just walk home. Now, Terry's family was really tight-knit, and as I mentioned, he was right in the middle of all of his siblings, so he had these three younger brothers and sisters, and he was very well known for being really sweet and helpful with them. Terry's older sister, Roxanne, said, quote, I guess you could call us clannish. We're there for each other in an instant, end quote. That's so awesome. I'm so jealous. I was an only child, and I always begged my parents to have more kids. Oh, no. At least one more, so I wasn't totally lonely. I had another friend who's an only child, and she says the same thing. Like, she was lonely. She always wanted a friend. Yeah, someone to get in trouble with. Anytime <laughs> anytime something was wrong, it was always my fault. Because <laughs> I always did it. Right, right. I couldn't blame it on anyone else. Uh, Well, I had a little sister, and I could tell you there were moments in our childhood where we both wished we were only children, but (laughs) we were also best friends, and now as adults, you know, we're so thankful to have each other. Of course. In preparation for the summer winding down, Terry had told his mom that he had plans to spend that evening with his friends in downtown Frankfurt. He said they were probably going to go see a movie and then hang out at the local bowling alley. And this was going to be one of the last hurrahs before he started his sophomore year in just a couple of days. So he asked Luella if she could drop him off downtown, and of course she said yes, this was no problem. She just wanted him to remember that his curfew was 11 p.m. and he needed to be home by then. 
And that's when Terry told his mom that he was actually going to spend the night with her mother, his grandmother, whose name was Georgia. So he told his mom that he would see her the next day. So dressed in a striped shirt, dark pants, socks, and tennis shoes, Terry got out of the car and headed off in the direction of his friends at the Garden Theater. But not without a little bit of drama first. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so as Luella was driving Terry to meet his friends, they were talking back and forth as mother and son do, and Terry even mentioned something about his buddy Dan Lanning, when they were interrupted by a red pickup truck driving towards them very aggressively. Now, Luella didn't recognize the people in the truck, and Frankfurt was a really small town of about 1,600 people. So it wasn't unusual to know the person driving the car next to you. But Luella said that whoever it was, they were honking and screaming obscenities at her. And it really disturbed her enough so that she ended up making a note of the license plate number. Very smart. Yes, very, very smart. I don't know that I would think to do, I mean, I would think to do it, but I don't know that my mind would work that quickly right and this was way before cell phones obviously 1973 so you can't just like snap a photo exactly yeah now even though frankfurt is a very small town it also attracted a lot of tourists especially in the summer months with the water and the hills it was a really beautiful place so people renting cottages on the beach of Lake Michigan was a common way for people to spend their summer. That sounds amazing. I know it really does. <laughs> it sounds, first of all, I went to Lake Michigan once as a child and it's like the ocean. It's so big. Right. Like that's what it looked like to me as a kid was the ocean. But yeah, to to rent a cottage just right on the lake. Oh, uh, yes, please. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Well, one of these tourists was a woman named Eileen Rocher, and she was renting a cottage near Lake Michigan that very weekend. And her cottage actually overlooked Crystal Lake, which is a smaller body of water that flows into Lake Michigan. And she'd been staying at the cottage with her husband and her three kids, but her husband had actually left to go back home earlier that day, and she and the kids decided to stay one more night. They really wanted to enjoy every possible moment of what was left of their summer. So on this evening, September 1st, she said that she was woken up by headlights shining into her bedroom window. Now this cottage was pretty isolated, so this was alarming. She got out of bed, she went into the kitchen, and she looked out the window but she couldn't see anything because of the thick tree line. But she did hear what she believed to be a small car, like maybe a sports car. And she said she heard the trunk close and then the sound of the car driving away. Now that same evening back at Terry's house, Luella, Terry's mom, heard a car racing up her driveway and the sound of kids yelling and horns honking and just, you know, all kinds of craziness. But after a few minutes, that stopped. So Luella went back to bed and she didn't give it any more thought. The next morning, when Luella called her mother Georgia, 
she was shocked to find out that Terry had never made it in that night. Now, this was very unusual behavior for Terry. He was not at all a troubled kid. He wasn't the type of teenager who broke curfew. This was totally out of character for him. So obviously, Luella and her husband, Hubert, were immediately worried about their son. So they decided to drive around town looking for him. And while she was out driving around, Luella passed a Benzie County Sheriff deputy. So she flagged him down and she told him that her son was missing, that he never came home the night before. But unfortunately, can you guess what happened? They didn't pursue it right away. (laughs) How'd you know? Just a hunch. Right. (laughs) So this deputy told Luella that Terry had probably just not come home because he didn't want to have to go back to school in a couple of days and he was probably just staying out in an effort to not get caught. But as we've talked about before, parents know their children and Luella and Hubert knew that this was not the behavior of their son. They knew this wasn't typical of him and they decided to keep driving around looking for him. And remember, this was way before cell phones, way before GPS trackers, way before anything of like that. So to find their son, they literally had to go looking around for him. Now, one of the things that Luella could do was call her oldest daughter, Roxanne, who was working at a local hospital to see if maybe she had seen or heard from Terry. Now, Roxanne had not seen him But she did remember Luella asking her if she knew of a boy named Dan Lanning. Remember that friend that Terry had mentioned during their drive downtown the night before? Well, sure enough, Roxanne did know Dan. Dan was a local 18-year-old boy, and Roxanne and Luella were able to reach out to him to see if he knew anything about where Terry might be. So when they find Dan, at first he was pretty tight-lipped. See, he knew that he had illegally bought some beer for Terry the night before, and he was worried about getting in trouble for that. But after his friend Tina encouraged him to give Terry's parents any information that he may have, Dan ended up saying that he did know a thing or two about what Terry might have done the previous night. So Dan said that Terry asked him to buy a six-pack of beer for him and then drop him off at a party on the bluff near the lake. Back in 1973, the legal drinking age was 18. So Dan agreed to buy the beer for Terry, and then he drove Terry to this bluff. Now, a bluff, for all of you fellow Floridians, (laughs) a bluff is a cliff that often overlooks water. So imagine a cliff overlooking Lake Michigan. So Dan said that after he bought the beer, he drove Terry to the bluff where the party was happening, but he didn't stay. He just dropped Terry off. He said Terry had told him that he would call his mother for a ride when he was ready to be picked up. So Dan watched Terry walk into the woods with his six pack in hand. The next day, around noon, A doctor who was vacationing on the beach of Lake Michigan looked out of the window of his cottage and saw what he at first believed to be a sunbather. 
But after he watched this person for a while, he realized that they were too still. Like, even for someone who was asleep, there was literally no movement coming from this person at all. So he called the police to tell them that he thought there might be a body on the beach. Deputy Warren Bailey and Marine Deputy Mike Nagee were the first to arrive on scene. And in addition to being a Marine Deputy, Deputy Nagee was also a teacher at the local high school and unfortunately, he recognized the body as being one of his very own students, Terry Sutter. That must have been horrible. Oh, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. That just, that hurts my heart. Yeah. Not just a child, but a child that you know. Oh, it's just, yeah, that's, oh, yeah, no, that's just a terrible, terrible thought. So Terry was found lying on a large log that was partially buried. He was still wearing a striped t-shirt, but instead of his pants, he was wearing swim trunks. On one of his feet were his sock and tennis shoe, but the other foot was bare, and his ankle was bruised as if it had been injured. Terry's missing sock and shoe have never been recovered, but his pants were found, but authorities have never revealed where they were found. Now, I grew up with a dad in law enforcement, and even as a child, I remember that he used to always joke around that if you wanted to get away with murder, all you would have to do is lay the body on a county line. He said investigators would never get to the actual facts of the case because they would be arguing over jurisdiction forever. And I couldn't help but to think of that in this case because here we have three police agencies responding to the scene, and there was definitely a bit of a jurisdiction war. And to this day, there are still three separate files on this case with three different agencies, and they may or may not share with each other their investigative findings. But in this case, I'm willing to bet they probably did not share their files because almost immediately, Frankfurt police decided this was an accidental death. They believed one of three things happened. Terry either drowned in the lake during a late night swim, or he could have fallen from the cliff and died from the fall, or finally, he may have fallen from the cliff into the water and then died. Now, Dr. Castellanetta, who worked at the hospital with Roxanne, Terry's older sister, was called to the scene to pronounce Terry dead. But he noticed some things that just didn't seem quite right. First of all, Terry's body was completely dry, which obviously did not line up with that drowning theory. Right. So Dr. Castellanata recommended to the police chief and to the Benzie sheriff that an autopsy be performed to determine the exact cause of death. And while officers continued walking the beach taking photos of the scene, Luella continued to drive around town looking for Terry. And that's when she drove past the police chief, and she actually saw him outside talking to two officers. So she stopped her car, and she went up to ask if they could help her find her son. And that is the moment that she was notified that Terry Sutter her baby boy was dead. 
per Dr. Castellanato's recommendation, an autopsy was performed, and the findings were very much a shock to authorities. So in a drowning, you know that you would expect to see lungs full of water, right? Right. Well, Terry's lungs were full, but not of water. They were full of sand. What? And in addition to his lungs being filled with sand, each of Terry's eyes had more than a teaspoon of sand behind them, and his neck and his head were covered in bruises. This autopsy showed that Terry was not the victim of an accident. He was murdered, possibly having his face held down in the sand until he finally suffocated to death. Oh my God. Terrible. So the day after the autopsy, a visitation was held for Terry at the funeral home, and the funeral director gave Terry's family a few options as far as like how they could approach the potential viewing of Terry's body. He told them that he could use heavy makeup to try to make Terry's face look more like it did in life, but that he would actually recommend a closed casket funeral, as there was extensive facial damage. But Terry's grandmother said absolutely not. She insisted on an open casket so that, quote, they could see what they did to him, end quote. Terry was laid to rest in a grave with a headstone, but almost immediately after burial, his grave was vandalized. And this is so disturbing to me. Like, it's just such complete lack of respect. You have parents and a family who've lost their son, and then someone's literally just, like, making a mockery of his resting place. And I just cannot imagine being his family in this situation. Right. That's just the worst kind of disrespect. Right? Like, how upset would you be? Extremely. Oh, it's awful. No matter what the Sutters did, they would clean up the grave and then come back and it would have been vandalized again. That's awful. Terrible. So only three weeks after his original burial, Terry's body was exhumed for a second autopsy. But this time, it was revealed that Terry was the victim of a brutal beating. And there were also two small marks found on his back, one on each side, up near his shoulder blades. And the Already Gone podcast described these marks as something you might see if someone was standing on your back with, like, the tip of a high heel, possibly holding you down. Okay. So after Terry's body is buried again, his grave continued to be vandalized, with the headstone damaged so many times that the family finally had it removed. And in its place, Terry's sister put a beautiful flowering plant and someone pulled that plant right out of the ground holy cow isn't that just insane to you what is going on well if this happened today what would we do put a camera on the gravesite and it, see who's doing it exactly i mean it might even lead us to the murderer right right but this was 1973 and a small town at that they didn't have the technology or the manpower to investigate this further. And even if they had put a camera up, I mean, we know how, like, grainy today's cameras are. Right. So back then, who knows what you would have been able to see, if right. anything. Especially if they're doing it at night. Right. You're not going to see anything. Right. I know we have cameras all over our house, and it's still like, who is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Heartbroken. 
the Stutter family had all markers for Terry's grave removed, and so that he could finally rest in peace, they left him in an unmarked grave, where he remains to this day. Oh, that is so sad. They had to bury him in an unmarked grave. It was the only way they could keep people from vandalizing his final resting place. Just when I think this can't get any worse, it does. That is just so absurd to me. It is. At the time of his murder, the local newspaper started running stories about Terry's case. But eventually, when there were no leads, and let's put it bluntly, it no longer seemed like a hot topic, stories stopped running. However, there was this one reporter, Pete Sandman, who was actually a former managing editor of the Benzie County Record Patriot, and he had followed this case from the beginning. Now, he has since passed, but it seems like this case was his passion, and he really hoped to see it resolved in his lifetime. So he did everything he could to try to get answers for the Sutter family. And one of the things that he, along with the newspaper, did in July of 1974 was they worked with John Berlin, who was the Benzie County prosecutor, and together they announced the Silent Witness Program. Now, this was a program created in an effort to generate any new leads in this case. It encouraged people to send in tips or information that they may have that would then be reviewed and then passed on to authorities. Guess how many tips came in? Uh, 30. How about none? Oh my gosh, seriously? No tips came in. So two years later, in 1976, authorities took another look at this case. And when they did, it was brought to light that a local teenager in the area revealed that a person whose name is redacted, approached him while he was in his car with his grandmother. This redacted person allegedly walked up to this teenager with his hands stuffed in his pocket as though he may be hiding a weapon, and then the redacted threatened the teenager that if he said anything about the Sutter case, the redacted would kill him. Wow. Right? Now, the grandmother, who was right there in the car when all of this happened, confirmed that this was a true account. But for whatever reason, nothing came of it. Dan Lanning was interviewed again in 1976, and again, Lanning confirmed buying the beer for Terry and then dropping him off at the bluff. He said he last saw him walking into the woods with the beer. So late in 2009... Sheriff Rory Heckman for Benzie County reopened Terry's case. And this was when that reporter, Pete Sandman, said, quote, I've been able to put together a series of articles about what really happened. We're coming to not a conclusion, but at least things that weren't ever revealed. End quote. Interesting. Well, guess what happened? What? In October 2009, the Benzie County Record Patriot published an interview with an unnamed interviewee. And according to this person, Terry found out that another unnamed individual was selling drugs in the community and Terry threatened to tell the authorities. This unnamed allegedly said that he didn't need to do that, that they should just be friends instead. 
and the unnamed invited Terry to a party at the bluff. When Terry arrived at the party, the unnamed allegedly hit him from behind, which caused Terry to fall to the ground, and then the unnamed began kicking Terry. Other partygoers began kicking Terry also, presumably under threat from this unnamed individual. After kicking and beating Terry repeatedly, the unnamed and fellow partygoers believed Terry to be dead, so they put him in the trunk of a car and drove around looking for a place to dump his body. Now, as they drove around, they heard moaning coming from inside the trunk. He's alive. He is. He's a fighter. So they pulled over and they kicked and beat Terry some more until again, they believed him to be dead. Then they took him to the bluffs and dropped him over the side. Now, according to this interviewee, the unnamed and the fellow partygoers came back several hours later to make sure that Terry was dead and somehow Terry was still alive. So they pressed his face into the sand until he asphyxiated. When the discovery of Terry's body was made, the parents of the unnamed stepped in and allegedly paid off authorities so that the investigation wouldn't get very far. It's also alleged that the unnamed suspect had family members that worked in the local law enforcement agencies. It's disgusting how real and realistic this is. I mean, it sounds like a movie, but it's real life, and that's just disgusting. It is. It is. And I just can't... I mean, I, it's so hard for me to fathom the mindset of any of the people I would call bad guys in this case, whoever did this, whoever vandalized the grave, anybody who had any type of authority at all who wouldn't... Like, who would try to cover up what happened. Like, right. It's just so far removed from the way I think that it's really hard for me to even understand how it could happen. Right. Money's more important to you than putting the bad guys behind bars. Right. It's just, yeah, it's hard to believe. Now, the person who gave this interview said that they were threatened, that if they said anything at all, they would be killed. Okay, so now go back in your mind to the beginning of this case when I told you that on the night that Terry went missing, remember that local tourist who was renting a cottage on the lake? Yes. Yeah, okay. And so she woke up to the headlights shining right. in her bedroom window. And what did she say? The sound of a sports car's engine. And then what sounded like a trunk opening and closing and then the car driving away. Yes. Doesn't it line up with this witness statement perfectly? Yes, it does. Well, I have to leave it at this. 48 years after his death, the murder of Terry Sutter remains unsolved. That's where it is today. That is so frustrating. Isn't it? I think that that interview that was published in the paper could carry a lot of weight behind it. And I think it's very possible that that's pretty close to the truth of what happened. And then, like, someone kind of almost ran off Luella on the road before Terry even went missing. And then that night was going up and down her driveway. Yes. Doesn't that sound like stupid kids to you? Yes, it does. So if it was kids who did this, and then maybe they went and vandalized the grave, and then almost, like, taunted the the mother right you know on the night that it happened before she even knew it happened right because it's it's not like today like today you wouldn't be able to get away with that no. your your cell phone's going to ping 
there's going to be cameras catching you driving down the street. But this was 1973. They didn't have that kind of technology. Right. So I can see where maybe kids who at that age often do pretty stupid things. Frontal lobe hasn't fully formed. And they just think they're invincible. And they they do this. And then it becomes a big joke. You know? And that's why they mess with the grave. And they taunt his mom. And to me, that that does make sense. And I I think that this theory could be accurate. I do too. It, It lines up completely. Absolutely. I just, what I don't get is like how someone can come and say, hey, I was threatened by this guy that if I said anything, he'd kill me. And the grandmother backs up that story and nobody does anything. Right. And then, you know, this interview and I mean, I'm sure someone knows the names. We don't, but they've been redacted for our viewing. And the only thing that explains that is what? That the police are covering it up. Exactly. Which, again, falls in line with that theory that the police are covering it up. Right. Because of money or a family member that works in the station. Right. Still doesn't make it okay. Absolutely terrible. And this guy, if you look at his picture, like, he just, he's so, he's handsome and he's just, I don't know. He reminded me of my son. He really did. I was just like, you know, oh, he's a good kid and he's just, he's sweet and literally has his whole life ahead of him and just stolen just stolen from him so that's the case of terry sutter it's a really really sad one it is so before we move on to the time to kill segment paula i just want to mention that we've seen our numbers go up like crazy this week yeah we have it's bananas it's so we we've been texting back and forth all week just saying oh my gosh have you seen this and then all the different countries that people are listening to us in, that like blew our minds. You've got two girls here who are not tech savvy at all. We're trying to figure these things out, but you guys have been so amazing. And if you could do us a huge favor, go to wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. That really helps to put our show in front of other new listeners. And we are so stoked at everything you guys are doing and saying and all the feedback we're getting. So we just wanted to say thank you so much. Yes, everything you're doing is helping us to grow, and that would be great. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So much. All right, Paula, we got a little time to kill, so why don't you tell me something scary? Okay, so I found some creepy random facts about what happens after you die. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's scary for sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so for one, your body will most likely make a loud groaning type noise after you die. The air and gases will pass through your throat and nose, and as it passes, it can make the vocal cords vibrate, which can make a sound like a groan. Imagine you're working in the morgue. It might be your first day, your first week, and all of a sudden, the corpse next to you goes, uh. <laughs> can you imagine? Okay, my dad, uh, when he was working his way through college, was a painter. And one of the places he was hired to paint was a hospital. And he painted all the different wings. And he has funny stories from, like, the different areas that he worked in. But one of the places he had to paint was the morgue. Ooh. And he kept hearing this (sighs) sound, Mm -hmm. like, every, like, ten minutes. And he was really starting to freak out. And then finally he realized there was an automatic air freshener (laughs) in the corner and it was every few minutes it would go (sighs) and that's what he was hearing but man he was like ready to 
He was ready to quit that job. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> one of them's coming back to life. That's right. So, yeah, I can imagine hearing a groan coming from a corpse would be quite terrifying. Yes. Lake Superior has three quadrillion gallons of cold water. The water is so cold, a dead body will never float to the surface because the water is never warm enough for the bacteria to grow that is needed to cause a body to float. So, no bacteria, no float. Wow. So, if you're going to dump a body, Lake Superior. That's the place to do it, huh? Yeah. Ooh, that's another one of the Great Lakes. What's with the Great Lakes today? I know. Spooky. Yeah. In the 1800s, photography of dead bodies was totally normal. Back then, if someone died before getting their picture taken, it was done post-mortem because it was the only way you could have a still picture done. Okay, that kind of makes sense to me. It does, but you'll always know that that's a picture of my dead relative or my dead friend or my dead baby. I mean, I wouldn't want that photo. To me, it would be a very personal photo, but I I, uh, have actually looked into there's there's post-mortem photography for stillborn children it's all these professional photographers all over the country who will go and and if they get a call that you know someone has a situation and the baby has not made it they'll go and they'll do these beautiful photographs of like the family together and in a situation like that where they're not going to have years of memories they're not going to have rolls and rolls of photos i can see wanting to like capture that moment Honestly, that's the only time you're going to have with them. And I actually think that's like so beautiful. And it's something that I actually looked into doing, except you have to have all these credentials as a photographer that I don't have. I can see in that scenario why someone would do it. Yeah, I can understand it. I just don't think I could. Your eyeballs flatten after death. Isn't that weird? A mortician explained that an eyeball will flatten much like a grape that's deflated, like when it turns into a raisin. Eye caps are inserted under the eyelid to give it a more natural shape for a funeral. And the eye color will change after death. So if a person has blue eyes, the color will change to brown or black within 48 to 72 hours when at room temperature. This is obviously important to pathologists and crime scene investigators when performing an autopsy or identifying the victim. I've heard that. I've heard where eye color can become a problem later on in identification. Right. Because, you know, someone had blue eyes in life, but their eyes are no longer blue. Right. Yeah. It's crazy what all is done to our bodies during the embalming experience. We really don't want to know. No. It is possible to die from fatal water overdose. Yes, this means drinking too much water. So it means that death happens when sodium levels fall drastically. Back in 2007, a woman drank six liters of water in six hours in order to win a Nintendo Wii. She threw up and died several hours later. Overhydration has actually killed many athletes. That case of the woman, she was doing it for a radio show. Oh, really? You uh-huh. heard of it? I have because that was in a different state. And the DJ who worked there at the time, one of the DJs, moved to one of our Orlando stations afterwards. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's not there anymore, but if I said her name, you'd probably recognize her. But she was there. I don't think she had anything to do with that segment, but she right. was working there at the time that that happened. You know how people joke that doctors have handwriting like chicken scratch? Yes. Well, thousands of people actually die every year because of a doctor's sloppy handwriting. 
There was a study back in 2006 by the National Academy of Science Institute of Medicine. They discovered illegible dosages and abbreviations of drug names that have led to millions of injuries and thousands of deaths. You know what I heard? So I used to work, years ago, I used to work at a law firm. And one of the things we did was medical malpractice. And I heard, I don't know if this has ever been verified or true, but I heard that one of the reasons why doctors write so sloppily is to protect them in a liability case later. Because if they write something, but you can't tell exactly what they wrote, they may not be able to be held accountable if they made any mistakes. Okay, that's interesting and I understand it, but still, it's... I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. Everybody makes mistakes. We're human, so we make mistakes. So doctors are going to make mistakes that cause injury or death unintentionally. I mean, we all, you know, we all make mistakes. And depending on what your job is, some of them have much worse consequences than others. But, yeah, that's just something I I heard. And then also to think that far ahead, oh, so if I'm in a lawsuit, I'm just going to go ahead and write this sloppy so I can't really be held accountable. I think that's pretty crappy. Oh, very. And again, I don't know if that's true. It was just one of the things that, you know, was kind of said behind closed doors. Right, right. (laughs) When we were trying to figure out what... I understand. ...the stop dude wrote. Yeah. So those are some weird, creepy facts. Those are creepy. I didn't know a lot of those. Yeah, me neither. Very interesting. Well, listeners, thank you so much. We've already told you how much it means to us, and... Um, we're super excited to watch our numbers grow every week. One of the things I saw, and it wasn't regarding our podcast, it was regarding another podcast, or uh, not any one particular podcast, but some people in some online forums were saying that they got really frustrated when they would listen to a episode and it would be about an unsolved case. And I understand that it is frustrating because we want resolution and it hurts you know, it hurts our souls to hear these stories and get invested and then not know what happened. But here at Dolls and Doom, we never want this to be just pure entertainment. These are people's stories. These are real tragedies. These are, this is people's lives. We always want there to be a higher purpose. So we are diligent in trying to always have a reason for telling the story that we're telling. And we believe it's important to tell both solved and unsolved stories because someone may know something. And even if a case is never solved, it's still important to honor these people, honor these victims, honor their families, tell their story. Everybody is important. Every story is important. And everybody deserves to have their story told. And it's our job to tell the stories for the people who no longer can. So maybe just, you know, you can choose to listen to what you want to listen to. But the next time you get frustrated that there's no resolution, just maybe maybe keep that in mind. It's how I look at it. Well said. Thanks, Doll. You're welcome, Doll. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, thank you to the people that are brand new and the people that have been there since day one. All of you are awesome. <laughs> the best. The best ever. All right, we can't wait to bring you a new episode. Yep, we'll catch you next time. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.